Welcome to episode 58 of the Contra Fabulist podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And no travel this week for either of us. That's exciting. Yeah, no travel for quite a while, I think, for at least a month or so um, until August. So at home, uh, I had a pretty productive week. How about you? Uh, it was all right. I'm a little allergied out, so I'll sound a little funny, funnier than normal, I think. But uh, um, work-wise, I'm, I'm getting things done. Never, never as much as I want. Well, I thought instead of um, talking about, necessarily talking about all of the shenanigans from the tech industry this week, um, we'd actually probably, I thought we'd start with looking a little bit at um, some of the work that you've been doing. And I, um, if, uh, but it, what really, I think what prompted it, what, what one of the stories that we put aside to address today was a, uh, a story, this, this particular one was in, um, that we'll link to us in Business Insider, but I've seen it in, in tons of places, that Amazon has applied to patent a beehive-like drone tower. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. It, as the subtitle says, the tower looks like something straight out of science fiction movie. Drones coming in and out, trucks coming in and out of the bottom. And uh, so this is, this is an actual patent uh, that Amazon has filed. But, you know, from my vantage point, I, I kind of want to focus on the storytelling aspect of this. You know, not that, um, maybe they are, but not that Amazon is, is purposely telling stories through filing of patents, but the way that the, the mainstream press kind of combs through these and looks through patents, looking for interesting little tidbits out of out of companies, I think is is super relevant um, to storytelling. It is a, a key piece of what I do um, for the API space in trying to understand not just what companies are doing with APIs, but really the, the motivations behind the API. Uh, and it also reflects, because it's APIs, it really reflects how they ultimately see the web. Because, it, for example, if companies like Amazon and, and Microsoft and IBM and these companies that I keep an eye on, uh, they patent things up uh, that, in my opinion, are the web. They are the underpinnings, the, the, the standards, the, the couplings, the things that make up the web and make the web work. But when these companies are patenting these things, I think it just tells a lot about how they view the web and they view the world. And I think this is a great representation of how, you know, Bezos and Amazon probably sees, sees the future, you know, in a very sci-fi way. Well, this is so. The, there are a couple of different points that I think we could we could talk about that you that you touched on there. Um, one is um, one is sort of the, the sort of practice of patenting, sort of why companies, why companies, uh, and not just tech companies, but what is the what is the impetus behind filing a patent? But the other piece I think is this idea of this being not so much about a particular piece of um, a legal move. Um, as it is about um, storytelling, right? So this is the second time in less than a year that we've seen a patent be well publicized from Amazon regarding drone delivery, right? So there was one back at the end of last year 
that was that didn't have this sort of beehive look to it. It was like these flying airships. Do you remember that? And so the so dir- this big is, dirigible type blimp. Thing. Yeah, like a dirigible that would sort of um, drop these sort of like I guess like drone dirigibles that would sort of float down with your packaging. And so, you know, on one hand, you could say what the Amazon is sort of trying to cover its bases legally so that it, if it does end up pursuing some sort of automated drone-based delivery system, that it's got the patents in place so that it can um, pull this off. But then the other piece of it is really just, despite, you know, I think it's been in the news for a couple of years now, despite there being no actual material movement on this front, right? Amazon is not using drones to deliver things and has no, I think, no, not that we know of, has not announced that this is imminent. They're still wanting us to think about the future in these terms. And so I think it's about crafting crafting a narrative, like you said, crafting a narrative about the future as mu- at least as much of, as it is this sort of legal defense. Yeah, I mean, that's... I think there's a psychological effect when these these companies have these patents. You know, they're they're painting a certain future. They're trying to uh, uh, tell a cer- set the stage in a certain way that benefits them, as well as plays kind of mind games. I think with their competitors, with the public at large, and they may never go into these areas fully. I mean, these are this is kind of the essence of the moonshot things we see out of Google's and Apple's and everybody that they're they're more about the storytelling and and make people kind of think you know, um, really, really amazing that things about these companies. Right, that they're innovative, right? This is this is how you sort of perform innovation. Yeah, and, and so the the patent thing for me, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of the one, uh, what was it, the story or I, where I heard you say that, you know, you um, the best way to predict the future is through a press release is like, so having this group of people in the basement, this these these tech writers and then slash lawyers filing these patents is a way of kind of predicting the future or setting the stage for what what you want to see. And I have um what prompted this kind of this discussion is this week I I updated my patents.apievangelist.com work and I have fifty seven thousand API related patents there that I'm sifting through using GitHub and Jekyll and this kind of new approach to looking through it. But, you know, the the story it tells, um, whether intentionally or not, about Microsoft, about IBM, about Amazon is is fascinating in the fact that these patent portfolios aren't showcased by the companies themselves. Usually Google does a decent job, um, but most companies do not showcase their patent portfolio. For companies like Amazon and Apple needs to be using them as storytelling engines, um, kind of predicting the future, I think, is super fascinating. So... Um... What kind of things are you able to glean when you look at patents for APIs? Like, are there particular patterns that you see? Like, is there an increase in patents or a, a particular things that you can look at patents and sort of say this looks like uh, perhaps not the way in which the industry is going, but um, this looks like the way in which the industry wants things to go? Yeah, I mean... Or- I, or doesn't want things to go. I mean, are there are there things that you can glean from it? If you if you go to patents.apievangelist.com, you'll see I'm I'm still sifting through it. There's a page with 
a bunch of keywords and, and all the patents broken down by um, from 2005 through 2016. And so I'm still trying to connect all those dots. But anecdotally, like, yeah, it's <laughs> you see things in, you know, I saw there's a big spike in 2012 and 2013 when it came to API management. So whether that was in response to the growth in the space hey, we need to lock this up, we need to be investing, you know, steering the patent arm of your company towards what you're hearing and seeing in the space. And that really plateaued and flattened. But then I see new spikes when it comes to uh, machine learning is one of them. You know, 2015 or so, I start seeing this spike in machine learning API related things, so wrapping algorithms. And so um, it's, whether it's, you know, the leading or whether it's following i think there's a little bit of both but um it's definitely how the future um does or doesn't happen is being predicted in these i think yeah i think that the the patent process itself you hear a lot of tech folks talk about it being broken which is um of course if you're a silicon valley type everything is broken except for of course their misogynist racist culture which i guess is functioning um as um it is. as designed it, 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 it is. anyway uh, the but the pat but the patents um patents the patent process is is i think it's i mean in cert, you know it certainly wasn't designed with sort of digital with a, with a sort of digital world in mind. And we can say that about lots of things, right? But, you know, a patent can be granted to, and this is the, this is like the official, um, the official intellectual property law in the U.S., to anyone who invents or discovers any new useful process, machine, manufacture, or composition of matter, or any new and useful improvement thereof. And what a patent does is it gives you the exclusive rights to, um, to, to stop others, or it gives you rights to, so you can stop others from making, using, or selling that invention um, without, have, without, they have to license it from you. So, you know, so, but it's interesting to look at patents, and the same thing holds true in education technology, the way in which, you know, and get, filing a patent is, is incredibly expensive. It's not like copyright, which, you know, you automatically, like, you're automatically granted copyright when you publish things, um, unless you sign away, <laughs> sign away your rights. But um, but but for, to get a patent, you have to apply. Um, it costs you know can cost up to upwards of you know several tens of thousands of dollars, um, and there's no uh, and there's a you know there's a the process where supposedly the patent office is supposed to look at prior art and determine the uniqueness of your of your invention but that's really questionable and it's questionable whether or not I've written about this previously it's questionable whether or not the folks who are working at the patent office have the sort of scientific or technical know-how to sort of to be able to judge these things it's it is a I mean it is a messy process and then of course it's 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 fertile ground for giant companies right you have to be a giant company really to play this game to sue the pants off of people who who are trying to break into the you know break into the the business yeah or 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 are dominating the business you would like to break into and ultimately will as the thousand pound gorilla the i wrote about this this last week that you know the six dimensions of kind of patents that that i'm thinking about or you know hey had someone had this as an idea and felt it should exist as a patent 
tells a lot about people. And I actually know some of these individuals filing these patents. I come across names. I'm like, oh, I know you. I actually, you've spoken at my conference. Okay. And then the second one is, you know, that you actually have the money and the resources to be crafting a patent and then filing it. Um, well, the third is, is, is the actual filing of it and, and kind of the, the dysfunction that is the, the patent office and their, their ability to, to look at these and know what the hell this is when it says API testing or API, you know, API algorithmic, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then the next area is litigation. You know, those people who can actually afford to litigate and defend both, you know, offensively and defensively. But then this, this drone piece by Amazon, the continued one, because, you know, you talked about that dirigible one. There's one about them, uh, you know, drones landing on light posts and charging. There's been an endless wave of these. And this is very much. Is that Was that Amazon as well? Yeah, that was Amazon as well. Hmm. And so there's very much this, um, this public kind of deal making that is like, hey, we're working on this. Hey, we're leading in this space. We're thinking about drones in this way. And some of it's smoke screens, obviously. I think a lot of it is distracting their competitors. Hey, we're working on this. No, not really. We're actually over here working on this. But here's this little sci-fi nugget for you to chew on for a while. And then, but ultimately, patents get to the point where it's the thing that worries me the most that has no transparency or observability is the backroom deals that are done with these patent portfolios. You know, we've seen big companies like Motorola sell to Google, which were basically just patent catalog sales. And th that was very public, but, you know, negotiations are done quite often without any sunlight on them behind the scenes, and patents are a big part of that. And, that, and that's what ultimately worries me about this stuff. Well, I mean, and I think that this this is an interesting, you know, this is an interesting point. Again, you know, in in my world, you know, a lot of a lot of folks, and I suppose that you know, even in even in yours as well, a lot of folks who who start startups are highly encouraged by their by their um, investors to file patents, um, and because in part, when when it's time to sell your company, right, when you have not become the next Google or the next Amazon, uh, when it's time to offload, um, offload your company, if you have a patent, it's like you have a thing, right? So even if your business, even if you don't have customers, even if your product didn't work, even if no one was interested in it, um, even if the IP wasn't necessarily what you've ended up doing if you have patents like it somehow magically makes your company have a thing right so you you know in addition to being able to sell off all of the office furniture you can sell you know you, you've actually got a substance you've got some sort of product not even product you've got you've got ip i guess well and think about who's in the market buying those i mean th those are the things that patent trolls buy up because you know We've often seen these these patents that should not exist because the, the the U.S. Patent Office has no capability of assessing, you know, any any the depth of algorithms or machine learning or what is and what isn't what already exists. You know, I've I see patents that are HTTP parts of the HTTP protocol um, patented, and so they don't have the capability of of of, of seeing this. But a patent troll sees the opportunity here. Well, hey. We got a patent on something that everyone's doing. Let's buy that patent from that that fire sale over there, and we'll we'll go litigate on this. And so there's there's just this wide narrative around all of this. And pat patents are very much like you said, how you create something. I saw someone arguing on a on a comment thread, which I should never read, but 
that you know patents are are just like titles are to land you know it's it's the deed it's the thing that says you own this idea this thing and in in cyberspace to be you know it's 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 frontier wild west land to be able to just go grab the you know the drone towers the drone dirigibles anything that you can possibly imagine cuz you have the money go lock it up and it exists it, it now is truth because you have a thing that says you you own it well, this is a you know this is a, a pretty sore spot for many people in education technology because it's I mean I think it's a core part of the history of and perhaps um, because it happened before uh, before the iPad perhaps many people in who are entrepreneurs today have never heard of it but um, in edtech history there was a, a pretty uh, I think a, a pretty important lawsuit um, patent um, infringement lawsuit. Um, filed by Blackboard, the learning management company, against uh, Desire to Learn, a, a different uh, learning management company, in which Pat, uh, Blackboard claimed that it had the patent on um, the LMS, right? Um, and so, eventually, I mean, eventually, the the um, patent uh, Blackboard's patents were invalidated, but the, but. Um, you know, Blackboard tried to sue its competitor, uh, a, a much smaller company at the time, um, out of existence um, by claiming that it, it, you know, that it had, uh, the, <laughs> you know, that it had it had invented, if you will, or it had at least it it had patented um, the an internet-based education support system and methods and this stuff you know this stuff still this stuff still happens um, I think when I wrote about it a couple of years ago it was that Khan Academy had patented um, teaching programming Wow that's amazing and so youth I mean you know you think you would think that these I mean again like how the hell can Khan Academy claim to have a patent on on this i don't i don't know i mean clearly whoever approved it probably i mean must not have known anything about the history of of computer science education which um i think probably predates Saul Khan let alone Khan Academy right but um but yeah you know and that but then what do you do you know Khan Academy Khan Academy it, I mean, it has a nonprofit tax status, but Khan Academy has deep, deep, deep pockets, right? And it's a powerful, it's a powerful company, and so you know they they've sort of cornered, you know, in some ways they've they've you know if they just they've signed the patent pledge, right? There's that patent pledge that people, um, some tech companies have said that they're not gonna use they're not gonna use their patents offensively; they'll just use them defensively. Which, okay, sure, believe you, but uh, it's you know, yeah. what does that look like? I, I that's the that seems to be the dominant narrative. When I I post every time I post, I regularly post these patents, these these ridiculous ones I find at APIs. The last one was a patent for API descriptions, so patent on the ability to describe an API. And so, of course, you always get the guy who comes in and goes, well, they're just doing it in a defensive stance, you know, and the company is Microsoft. Um, because Microsoft cares about APIs and the web, open web so much, they're actively spending money to defend it and defend this this frontier, um, which is, 
I don't know how people can make that argument, but um, all right. Yeah, so this, um, you know, thinking about this history, thinking about people not knowing their history. I mean, again, you know, when people when people come up with these, 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 you know, sayings like, oh, they're only going to use them defensively. I mean, to me, it's this real amnesia about how the, what the history of, well, I would say what the history of intellectual property looks like. Um, this sort of assumption that everyone's just doing patents because we're all, we're all friendly and, you know, uh, we're just do you know we're just sort of doing it in order to I don't know give the give the give the folks at the patent office something something to work on um, defend but, individual know, artists or something you know I mean that's copyright yeah guess, but yeah. yeah it's it's odd I mean but I you know I spent this week uh, or part of the week working on the corp on the on corporate history on the corporate history of Pearson. Um, I'm trying to sort of get some of my ducks in a row before I launch into my uh, Spencer Fellowship. Have I mentioned that I have a Spencer Fellowship? Uh, before I launch into my fellowship work this fall, that I wanted to pull together, you know, a history of, of Pearson. And I think it ties into what you were saying about the way in which patents, patents sort of, patents are both are sort of how we predict and narrate the future, but sort of not knowing the history of these things is sort of, I think a way in which the past sort of gets erased and just thinking about how carefully crafted Pearson's own storytelling about its history is versus the kind of, I mean, truly predatory behavior that a company has to have displayed in order to become uh, a giant, a giant corporation, right? You don't just become a giant corporation by like having having, you know, just doing things, you know, and for the sake of like, def you know, defensiveness. Well, think of your... You go on the offense, right? Like, so these companies are on the offense. Like, Google's on the offense. Amazon's on the offense. These companies are not, are not Microsoft, certainly, on the offense. They aren't just sort of sitting meekly by. Well, and this is why they're, they're crafting certain narratives. This is why you have a PR communication strategy for your press releases. This is why you have a strategy for your, your patent filings, because this is all part of this, this, this offensive strategy that you're using to dominate, take over, and move. And one of the things, you know, augmenting my work with the, your work um, on the timeline, you have, you, know, you have a pretty robust timeline of, of Pearson's whole history, corporate history, back you know, a, you know, f for quite a ways. So how do we, how do we now go into this patent archive that I have and pull out anything, you know, filed by, by Pearson and then hang on that? Because I mean, that's, that's a long time. That's over a hundred years of, of history. So what is, what is the, 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 the patent portfolio? What role has it played in that and, and at, at each place um, in its history, as far as it course corrected or shifted or went after this industry or, you know, I think there's a there's another story to be told there. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I think around, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm sure P Pearson does in terms of its being a giant conglomerate that has gobbled up many little companies. I'm sure it does have its a, a fair share of patents. Um, I, I know that, I mean, I'm guessing that with its move into um, into being a media company, that it's probably, its IP is mostly copyright. 
um, thinking about that's the that's what it went after. I believe it was one of the companies that went after Boundless and claimed that Boundless was infringing on the um, on its textbook IP. But but I mean IP in general, not just pat. You know, patents are such a patents are really interesting, partially because they come with these sketches, right? Like, you know, the actual description of Amazon's beehive drone tower, whatever. Um, but it's to me, I love these sketches um, that always accompany them. I, you like you can see, um, you can sort of see this, see this sort of imagine imagination at work. Um, I, but yeah, the look, researching the history of, of Pearson was really fascinating to me. Like I, I had, I mean, I knew that it started as a construction company in the 1800s. Um, but sort of how that one gets from being a construction company to the world's largest education company. Um, uh, and I is, you know, is an interesting, is an interesting path. Um, and then I had no idea how actively involved Pearson was in the oil business, um, nor did I realize how um, how the family, the, the, the Pearson family, had become, uh, had, um, had been made uh, lords um, and is now a you know, that's a title that's passed down from, from Pearson to Pearson. So they're part of the, you know, they're, they're the ruling aristocracy of education, but they're like, they're literally the ruling aristocracy of the UK. Uh, we, we need that in Silicon Valley, so a similar system. <laughs> right. I'm sure that the, uh, whatever those neo, neo monarchists are probably all over that. <laughs> Yeah, what what I thought was really interesting how you or is that going to be Mark Zuckerberg? Is that our segue to talk about Mark Zuckerberg totally not running for president? Oh God, no. <laughs> um, the, what what I thought was interesting how you pulled it together was as you're trying to paint this timeline, this picture, this narrative of of Pearson is how much work you had to do to piece that together from from different sources, and then what you were able to or not able to get actually get from Pearson itself. You know, really casting a light on, well, here's the big story, but then, you know, how do you highlight, well, here's the story that Pearson wants you to know. They want you to think of Pearson as this. And, um, you know, I think that from a storytelling perspective is, is... Yeah, that was that was super interesting to me. Pearson does have a timeline on its website. Um, the timeline only goes up to 2014. And you and I were talking about this the other day. I don't think that that's nefarious. Um, I mean, it does, it does happen that Pearson's, um, I think Pearson's reputation has sort of gone, has sort of, has, has sort of spiraled downward in the last couple of years. But I think that probably what happened is the person who did the website, uh, uh, website refresh isn't there anymore that I'm sure I don't think that they're even aware that this, this page exists. But what was interesting was that it really did underscore the company as a media company and not as a construction company. It really downplayed. It didn't mention the oil, the oil business at all. Um, but it, it also want, it also had several, um, it, it also showcased several key, um, book, several books that were published that are important in the history of publishing that actually happened before these companies had been acquired by Pearson, which I thought was funny, right? So one was the publishing of Lolita, um, uh, which I think was maybe was, I'm not going to remember. I don't have the 
I can't like tap through 200 of the slides on my timeline to find it, but one was the publishing of Lolita, right, which of course was quite scandalous. And then the other, perhaps more significantly in, in the history of um, free speech in the UK, was the publishing of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which I, think, I believe was Penguin, but now I'm not sure either. Um, but that there was, it was, you know, um, there was an obscenity trial. The, the publisher was brought up on obscenity charges for publishing that book. And of course, so here's, here's um, Pearson in those two cases really touting that it's this supporter of free speech and, you know, really the right that, you know, the right to, well, the right to publish um, lascivious um, material, uh, kind of rapey stuff uh, in the case of Nabokov. Um, but, uh, but really, um, I think underscore underscoring Pearson, Pearson wanting to associate itself with with uh, a free press, with free speech, rather than um, you know rather than associating itself with imperialism in Mexico and and its connections to um, the Porfirio Diaz dictatorship in Mexico. Well, there's two two layers that I think are going to keep coming up and going to need more exploration here. Is one. The, um, the oil and gas connection because, you know, the, the analogy and you hear it a lot that people comparing, you know, big data is the new oil. I think that's an interesting one. But then also the the imperialist kind of nature of, of, of ed tech and I think their experience there. Um, not, not that these things mean they're going to be good at, at doing big data and, and APIs or, you know, uh, student surveillance, but it means uh, there's some motivation there. Yeah, so I'm working on, um, uh, I used uh, timeline.js, which, um, to build my, to build the Pearson timeline, it was super easy, it's run, it actually runs off a, of a Google spreadsheet, um, but it sort of motivated me to do a bunch, I'm going to do a, a several of these, I think, like I said, some of this sort of foundational corporate history that's going to be useful for me when I try to unpack, again, unpack, like, where do these stories come from, like, who... Who and how are really are really selling selling us these particular stories about about the future, and where are these connections come from, come from? Like so, you know, you can see in the story the corporate history of Pearson again, like this sort of rise of Lord Cowdray, right? The the last name, you know, they, you you've got it. This sort of um, you know, you have someone who's a lord, a, a British lord. Um, uh, you know, you sort of see this powerful position that Pearson that Pearson has taken, and then, of course, you know, running newspapers and whatnot to be able to promote certain, to be able to, you know, see see certain um, and publishing textbooks certainly helps to frame. That's one way to frame frame stories about the past and stories about the future is to be a publisher. Um, but I'm I'm interested in looking at some other education companies' history. Um, Blackboard, I mean, I think Blackboard being one of them. Um, I'm interested in the history of the Gates Foundation. I'm going to do a timeline on that one as well. But the um, this this tool, if folks have never used it, I, it's really slick, really easy to use. So Well, and when you couple that with the way you use GitHub to publish your project sites, so basically the... The data source of this, you're you're building the data source in Google Spreadsheets. You're using Timeline JS to to uh, publish it as JavaScript, connect to the Google uh, Sheets API, and then publish this beautiful timeline that, that runs on GitHub. So what I'm going to do is is drop in there and, and make a poll uh, 
kind of take the what timeline JS is using the spreadsheet, and I'm going to dump uh, a, a YAML and a JSON um, and basically hang an API behind each one of these. You do so each timeline, corporate timeline that you do, there'll be an API, and then what that'll do is that'll basically set the stage for hey now second stage of story telling you have this kind of whole timeline what else can we tell alongside of this or how can we pull it and show it in different ways maybe you know small subsections of time to 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 craft a specific narrative but i think there'll be a lot of opportunity to to dig deeper yeah so that's um yeah that's going to be my my next couple of weeks procrastinating on other work by um working on timelines yeah, well, this is going to be fun. I think uh, this is we're just getting going on this because you are, you know, preparing for your your fellowship at Columbia. But how we um, take patent data, how we take uh, timeline data, how we get stuff from the SEC, um, open corporates. We're going to just start pulling from a, a variety of sources. We have um, uh, we've pulled uh, indexes of tech blogs, major tech blogs that we have that we can search through. So we're building a, a pretty interesting toolbox, I think, to kind of, you know, we don't, I don't know where this is going to go as far as allowing you to connect the dots, but I think that's, you know, kind of a sign of what's coming for the next year. Yeah. Yay. Look at that. We, we, we actually did a whole podcast without um, mentioning Travis Bickle, who got his, um, got canned this week. That's the only tech update that you know I, I'm going to offer. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad because we didn't talk about a certain son, so um, it's hard to let yeah. country right now. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to end it. Um, we're working on good stuff. All right. Till next week, then. Till next week. Bye. Bye.